Hello, this Saturday morning, you're listening to The Core Report Weekend Edition with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. On this show, you'll be hearing conversations typically featured in our YouTube video series, Connecting the Dots. In these conversations, I speak to experts from various industries who help connect the dots on topics and issues that aren't usually accessible to most of us. But be sure, by the end of it, you would have gained a deeper understanding of something interesting or significant in the industrial or technology space as I did putting it together. If you prefer video, we've also included the YouTube link in the description. Other than that, we hope you truly enjoy the show. This is the weekend edition of The Code Report. Hi, Arun. I'm pleased to have you with us today. So just to introduce Professor Arun Sundarajan, he's the Harold Price Professor for Entrepreneurship and Professor for Tech Operations and Statistics, and presently focused on a bunch of issues, including future of capitalism, artificial intelligence, and platform-enabled change. And he's also the author of a very interesting book called The Sharing Economy. Arun, thank you so much for joining me. Delighted to be here, Govind. Yeah, and finally. So, you know, I thought we'll talk about two or three dots in connecting the dots. One is the present of AI, because that itself is such a challenge and there's so much being said at this point. The second, obviously, is the future and what does it look like? And third is obviously, where do we all fit in that? And should we be uh, mortally scared or should we feel optimistic or essentially, how should we be dealing with it? Currently, we are still in this point where we are awestruck by what we're seeing around us, even, I mean, not just chat GPT itself or regenerative uh, AI, but also the way people are finding interesting applications. And every day there's a firm or maybe many firms who are using chat GPT API to create something interesting of their own. So tell us about how you're seeing this evolve. Well, I'm very excited by the emergence of generative AI. And I think it's been a long journey in many ways, um, back from the expert systems of the 1990s to the rise of machine learning since the mid-1990s. Then the coming of age of finding your own features with neural networks where you didn't have to rely on the humans to say this is what matters. And now to the generation of these large language models that are able to generate content on their own, able to generate um, images on their own. I think one of the things that's most compelling about these large language models is the way in which you can relatively easily customize them with a few examples to do something new. It's like having an incredibly smart person who has real breadth of general knowledge and who knows all of the rules of English and so on. And if you just give them a few instances of something new, you know, sort of here's how to rank reviews. Here's like, you know, a bunch of conversations with my customers. Here's a bunch of specialized information about my particular line of business that they can use the general knowledge that they have and they use the language knowledge that they have to suddenly become an expert in what you want them to become an expert in. And so I think we're in a very early stage of we're just sort of scratching the surface in terms of what the potential of these large language models are going to be for specialized business applications. And and that's interesting because it's also a very frightening description because what you're saying is that someone who's essentially a master of none suddenly becomes an expert in something. That's true. And uh, we haven't tested yet the depth of this expertise, but you know, we could create for example a um, you know, a digital twin of Govind. Um, you know, there's plenty of content out there 
that describes how you think, how you write, how you speak. And so it wouldn't take too long to fine-tune a GPT model um, to start to generate content like you. Now, the open question is, how far can it go in terms of matching the human goal? And then that's something, that's an empirical question that we're going to have to see the answer to over time. And, and you use this example because you feel that people are already working on this. Oh, they have worked on it already, yeah. There are some good examples. I mean, like the Khan Academy has a teaching assistant called Khan Migo, which they spent a lot of time fine-tuning in collaboration with Microsoft that does um, a better job than any digital teaching assistant that I've encountered in being able to not give you the answers but teach you how to understand something. And again, this was sort of fine-tuned um, to the specific application of education. I'm seeing examples in a wide variety of other domains as well. You know, I think healthcare is a very exciting example where you can dramatically expand the reach of particular kinds of, you know, sort of non-critical healthcare to areas where you may not have a qualified doctor or you may not have a person who is qualified to elicit symptoms and then give an opinion. And so, yeah, the sky's the limit at this point. And you also see similar application in financial systems or financial planning. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the areas where, you know, there's a very huge market potential is in sort of mid-range financial advice. And part of the reason for that is that, um, you know, the set of people who have a dedicated human financial advisor is currently much smaller than the set of people who could benefit from a dedicated human financial advisor, but, you know, just can't afford one. Um, from the financial advisor's point of view, there's no real business model for them to answer a few questions from a lot of people. They tend to sort of build deep relationships with a small number of high net worth or sort of bit high range net worth people. And so in that space, I think the LLM-based financial advisors are going to take off once we figure out how can we train them in a way that elicits sufficient trust from a person who is seeking that financial advice? I mean, one of the interesting things that has come up on the trust front is, at least in the U.S., it's much easier to get someone to trust an AI-based system for healthcare advice than it is to get them to trust an AI-based system for financial advice. And it really has to do with what is the human equivalent Again, in the U.S., your typical experience with a doctor is largely someone you don't know who's wearing a white coat and thus you trust. They say they're the doctor, they tell you what's wrong with you and you trust them. So the AI experience is not that far away. On the other hand, in financial advice, for a lot of people, there's no sort of analogous human experience. For the few people who have a dedicated financial advisor, the trust has built over years and so, you know, just listening to a bot after a few minutes of interaction does not ramp up trust to the level that's necessary to take consequential decisions. Right. That's interesting. And I'm going to come back to uh, how all this could affect people and jobs and so on. But that's later. You're talking about AI making us lose the intellectual property rights over our own intelligence at a TEDx Gateway talk. So tell us about that. I mean, it sounds, uh, again, a combination of excitement and frightening that's true. I mean, you know, it's an issue that isn't very widely discussed, but which I am increasingly concerned about because of the ease with which these new generative AI systems can be customized to, you know, do a specific thing. That specific thing can be mimicked 
the creative behavior of a particular individual. We've already seen it happen in the music and art domains where pretty much any band that you pick, you can train a generative AI model to create new music in the style of that band that is indistinguishable from what the humans have created. It's the same thing with cartoonists. So in some ways, you're taking away someone's ability to own how they create. Tomorrow, this will come to the more corporate sector where you know, you'll start out by saying, let's train a large language model to be my digital twin to offload some work. It can draft memos in my voice. It can reply to email. Um, but there's no guarantee that this digital twin is not going to stay behind if you switch employers. And that's the issue that I'm trying to raise awareness of and come up with a solution for, which is that as things currently stand, we haven't really thought about what are our intellectual property rights over our creative process. It's all been around specific instances of what we create. And this isn't the fault of the lawyers or the legislatures, right? I mean, they never really had to think about, do you own your intelligence? I mean, it was by default, of course you do. So I think the solution really lies in extending, in some ways, the intellectual property infrastructure cover um, if something is trained specifically to replicate parts of a human being, then the human being should have ownership rights over that replica and some kind of joint ownership claim over what that replica creates. So if your AI generates new content, um, you should have some kind of ownership rights over it the way you have ownership rights over what you generate. But if you were to extend that music example, so today we know that, okay, there is an IPR system in music. You know, I have music rights. I could be Michael Jackson, who's passed on, uh, lived in the US. But the royalties continue to flow through various streams from all over the world, through record companies and maybe finally to his estate and so on. Would this be an ex sort of this extend itself? And But I'm also wondering how you would capture... Because you have to train someone to capture the fact that it was Michael Jackson's talent which was used to create this, though he's not around. Well, that's the beauty of the new generation of AI, right? I mean, that's where the machine learning revolution took us, where you don't actually have to know how the AI is generating stuff. If you just give it enough examples of how to generate things, it can learn in a way that we don't fully understand and it can start to generate new music in Michael Jackson's style. Um, the open question now is, if someone comes up with a way to train a Michael Jackson music creator, should Michael Jackson's estate have claims over both, like, you know, that generator and the music that it generates? And I would argue that if you move away from people who are really famous to individuals who may not have the same market, and may not be musicians or artists, or someone like you for that matter, who's like, you know, got a particular style of writing, who's got a particular way of analyzing things. And that's something that you have created based on your experience and based on your journey. If you don't have ownership over that, then my worry is that over time, people will not think that there's enough incentive to create this kind of capability because once you've created a few examples based on this capability, anybody can pick them up and replicate you. Right. Perhaps in keeping all this in mind is why some tech companies are already soliciting legislation. Is that because they are trying to catch up and they want time to catch up? 
or because they are genuinely worried about what this can do? Well, I think it's a mix of different reasons. I think everybody who has thought about AI policy realizes that there's no comprehensive way in which technology can be the solution. Right? I mean, take the simple example of creating deep fake videos. That technology is out there. Right? I mean, saying that the technology companies have to prevent this from happening technologically is simply not possible anymore. The only solution is legislative to say that creating deep fakes is illegal in some way. Misuse of your likeness is illegal. Misuse of your voice is illegal. Creating a digital twin of yours without your consent. Some of these things simply have to be illegal. And I think what that's going to require is striking the right balance between openness and sort of like, you know, chasing innovation and some sort of licensing and control. You know, one thing that I think is a good idea is to, at least in the early stages, you know, if you classify a particular AI as having sufficient risk to only allow people who have licensed infrastructure to be able to run that kind of AI commercially. So some people are calling this Know Your Cloud, sort of a new kind of KYC. In the past, when looking at tech-related regulatory questions, my initial instinct has always been, let's go down the self-regulation path and then wrap the government around where we see market failure. But this is an exception. This is a case where it is very clear that legislation has to lead the way. Are the tech companies asking for legislation because they genuinely want the problem solved? I think it's partly because they realize that the solution has to be a combination. I think it's also in part because if you're a large tech company, having a robust regulatory infrastructure early on may preserve your leadership position at a time when a lot of this AI is going open source. And there is a worry about how am I going to retain any of the value that I'm creating. And so I think it's less about catch up to your original question, because it's not just, you know, Google and Microsoft are leaders in different ways. I mean, Microsoft and OpenAI have won the initial chatbot war, but Google has perhaps the deepest bench of AI talent in the world. They may not release it as fast because, you know, it might interfere a little with their search business. And so they've, they've got a different kind of balancing act to strike. But these are both companies in leadership positions and they're both calling for regulation. So I think it's a combination of, you know, wanting to make sure that AI suddenly isn't banned completely because terrible things happen and wanting to make sure that their leadership position is preserved to some extent and not constantly threatened by open source and sort of small companies. Right. I mean, you said terrible things happen, right? And uh, disinformation comes to mind. Sam Altman himself is on record to say that that's one of the biggest downsides of ChatGPT as he sees it. So wh where will this go? And how could this go as things stand in your own uh, understanding? Well, uh, a couple of things could happen, right? I mean, one is we may start to rely more and more on content that is generated by an AI as our initial point of generating content itself. We may start to believe that the answers that are coming from large language models um, are the right answers. And if you go down into how a large language model, something that is sitting on the ChatGPT works, um, people often ask me, like, why does ChatGPT get things wrong? Why does it make up things? 
And part of my answer is that you have to realize that ChatGPT is making up everything that it says. Every word is made up. I mean, the surprising part is that so much of it is actually correct and true. And if we don't sort of get a good regulatory system around this early, I mean, we, of course, run the risk of rampant misinformation, potentially hate speech. We also have to pay very close attention to the kind of bias that is embedded in these large language models. Because again, they're not programmed in a particular way. They're learning from examples. And so they may have a particular cultural orientation that may not represent the global context in which they're applied. Um, they certainly have some traditional sort of patriarchal bias in them. If you ask patriarchal about bias, liberal bias. Yeah. So if you ask about scientific discoveries, they're more likely to make up the name of a man rather than a woman. If you ask about company founders, and I've tried all this, you make up the name of a company and say who founded this company, it will give you the name of an Indian man. Okay, that's so interesting. This is sort of the particular cultural and patriarchal bias that ChatGPT has. So um, these are some of the early dangers. I think in the longer run, it really has to do with loss of control over our intelligence. At some point, you'll reach a place where I, I don't believe that AI can generate all of its knowledge itself. I mean, you're going to have to inject human-created knowledge into the process, but we shouldn't reach a point where there's no incentive for a human being to do this. That's a good segue to asking about you know what things are going to look like as you look ahead, and which I'm assuming is not too far out. And also, let me put that question in the context of a country like India. You know, we have very manpower-intensive uh, jobs, businesses, IT services, exports. And a lot of that, the value addition is lower. And I guess, therefore, the fear that AI in many forms could take that over. It's a little early to make uh, bold predictions about exactly where this new type of AI is going to displace jobs. But early indications are that these large language models are very good at a few things. They're very good at coming up with first drafts, so initial content ideation and generation. They're fairly good at content summarization. They're very good at structured conversation, even specialized conversation. So if you give large language model enough examples that pertain to technical support for a particular television, it can learn how to provide technical support for this television relatively fast. And they're also very good at creating simple computer programs. As the complexity grows, I think they are limited still. And so if you think about jobs that involve understanding the syntax of a language and generating simple computer programs that other more expert programmers then assemble, if you look at um, you know customer support, and if you look at the less thoughtful branches of journalism that are generating clickbait, for example, um, anyone who is in any of these professions is facing a serious and immediate threat from large language models. Um, I think certainly on the customer support side and on the less complex computer programming side, um, both of these could hit India you know, because there are sort of large fractions of the global workforce in each of these areas do sit in India. And so... Um, those are two areas where I think like, you know, people should pay attention. So, you know, in India, there's been um, a lot of emphasis on learning coding early and maybe elsewhere too in, in the world. Do you still feel it's necessary? Should we be now thinking of something else rather than just coding, particularly young people, young even children? I still think it's a really good idea to teach people computer programming early on. 
And part of the reason is for the same reason why it's good to teach them math. It wires your brain in a way that is good. Like, you know, you are sort of learning certain ways of thinking and ways of problem solving through the programming. I think the emphasis should be more on concepts and less on syntax. But I don't think there's much of a return from being the expert who knows exactly the Python command to solve a particular problem. But, you know, understanding recursion, understanding these concepts, um, I think that that's still valuable because, you know, we're not we're not going out into the job and doing differential calculus, right? But we are benefiting from having, well, you know, I think we are benefiting from having learned that in middle school or high school. So in the same way, I would encourage continued coding, but with a shift away from like, you know, sort of being able to build things that actually work and towards sort of like, you know, um, a deeper and deeper emphasis on the concepts and the thinking. Right. Last few questions. So one is, uh, how should organizations be uh, looking at this? I'm talking about the opportunity first and then perhaps the threat. In the past, you've talked about this being more powerful at this point on the B2B side rather than the B2C. Well, I mean, certainly one area where organizations could definitely benefit is in knowledge management. I mean, I think that's a place where every organization should be looking. You know, this has been in the lingo since the early days of the internet. The early web dream was that, like, you know, because of the web, we will now be able to access all of the knowledge in our organizations, search for it through like a customized search engine. And, you know, the results on that have been mixed. But now, with the possibility of being able to take like the knowledge that is sort of embedded in unstructured text and train something to understand it in its own way and be a resource for people in your company. I think there's a huge opportunity from that, whether you're in the pharma sector, whether you're like, you know, sort of creating specialized chemicals for paints, or whether you're in financial services or legal services. Um, knowledge management is certainly sort of a priority. And, and uh, if there is a digital twin, then you could leave the company and your digital twin could continue to run operations or R&D yeah, or whatever. I, 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 mean. I think up to a point, you know, <laughs> but there, there's sort of a balancing act between like, you know, how much... Um, maybe it's not that different from when um, in some organizations, when you delegate to an employee, you're always sort of striking a balance between like, you know, how much should I give up and how much should I keep to myself? How much should I preserve my own position? So you're going to probably face an equivalent thing with your digital twin, but we're in a much less um, understood space. Um, I think uh, for organizations, um, definitely looking at customer engagement and interaction that's definitely a space where AI has so far failed to really deliver until these large language models came along. We've all faced the frustrations of shouting at, you know, sort of these voice response systems over the phone. And then we look at Siri and Siri seems to understand what we say and we wonder. And the answer is because Siri is customized to you. Now, once we enter this area where there's enough technology to parse what you're saying and convert it into text, and the large language models are trained on specialized areas, both on the sales point of view and the customer support point of view, there's definitely low-hanging fruit for most organizations. Sounds interesting. So, Arun, you've sort of traversed many themes and subjects uh, in your career. I scatter the dots all over the place and leaving it to you to connect them. Yeah, and I'm talking over time as well. But today you're focused on AI, and obviously this is a very, very important phase, and perhaps more critical and important at the same time. 
how are you spending your own time trying to keep up with this because this is something that everyone is uh, literally grappling with and without knowing even what it can do as opposed to creators of other things who knew exactly what their inventions could do most of us are playing a battle of catch up where you know i'm fortunate you know i was programming as a kid um, you know i built expert systems when i was in college and so i'm starting with an advantage relative to most business professors because i have some sort of background in computer science but even i've had to spend like you know in the early days of llms i was spending a few hours a day just trying to figure out exactly what the technology capabilities are so on the ai front i think that that has slowed a little you have to be willing to invest a couple of months in sort of like you know getting up to speed with how these things work at least at a high conceptual level in terms of other things that i'm thinking about outside of ai i've been spending a lot of time thinking about this move towards digital sovereignty there are countries that not just on the privacy front but on other fronts uh, there seems to be a trend towards wanting sort of national self sufficiency in like you know the creation of digital of different kinds you've seen the us moving towards wanting to become more self sufficient on the semiconductor and chips front you see the eu struggling to reconcile the fact that they don't have a cloud provider so they are dependent on the us and china for cloud provision should be like you know sort of bring this in house so it's an interesting move because china was the original example of a digitally sovereign country right for the last 10 years they have built their own sort of tech stack so to speak on all dimensions but um you know if you look beyond the us the eu india and china i worry that this will harm other smaller countries who are certainly not well served by trying to invent everything themselves i mean forget about semiconductors which is impossible but even on the cloud front or the social media front information front you're much better off if you have access to global technology in some ways um global platforms for all of their ills can provide a check in certain ways like you know on certain kinds of government activities and so it's not something that i've drawn any strong conclusions about yet it's just an interesting trend that i think is in the early stages and that we'll be talking about a lot in the next few years yeah and and it's something that's pretty uh, live as a theme in india as well because you know for example we have localization of servers uh, you know mastercard and uh, visa had to localize their data otherwise they couldn't operate and and so on and i'm sure that's an extension but i i do want to come back on that uh, theme at a slightly later point and maybe spend a uh, half an hour or sometime just uh, you know quizzing you and and getting your thoughts on it for sure on that note arun it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you so much okay thank you govind i hope i managed to connect at least absolutely some of the dots. absolutely yeah. and left us all with a lot to think about and worry about rightly so so thank you once again all right well great to be here as always This was the core report with me Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you. including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening